This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome. On last week's program, we took a little bit of a different tack. We just sort of did a cold start and talked about a trip down to Los Angeles for the benefit of Radio Parallax. We're in yours truly. Saw a couple of plays, one about Tennessee Williams, one about Oscar Levant with Harpo Marx thrown in. I enjoy that, and I, I certainly hope you did as well, dear listener. But I think we're going to generally do slower starts than we're used to in the past. What I think we'll do is kind of take a look back at the some of the bigger items that took place in the past week or the more interesting things that the host engaged in and just start there. How's that sound? We have over the years enjoyed a happy relationship with the good people at the National Geographic Channel. We do get a lot of solicitations from publicists and, <laughs> well, let's just say some aren't as good as others, but when Nat Geo sends you a note, you usually pay attention. We certainly did. They notified us that there's a new documentary that will be airing on March 14th on the Nat Geo channel. It's titled Water and Power, A California Heist. We talk about California water and its politics in this program quite a bit. So we're very pleased to be joined by film documentarian Marina Zinovich and environmentalist attorney Adam Keats. I have had a chance to see this documentary and I would highly suggest, dear listener, that you consider tuning in on the 14th of March because this is worth your while. It's very well done and outlines some of the chicanery that continues to go on in California water politics. Of course, in California, water and politics are kind of the same thing. Marina Zenovich has won Emmys for her fine documentary work, and an executive producer on this enterprise was Oscar winner Alex Gibney. We were privileged to interview Mr. Gibney many years ago in conjunction with his film Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. He's done a lot of good work since then. Anyway, our discussion about water and power at California Heist will take place in our second segment, so you should stick around for that. And although I don't really want to, I feel compelled to talk a little bit about Donald Trump. As you no doubt are well aware by now, Donald Trump is alleged to be the 45th president of the United States. And in fact, has been handed the reins of power. The prospect of a Trump presidency, of course, has been worrisome to many, including the staff here at Radio Parallax. I thought it'd be worth taking a look back at some of the things people were saying a while back. And no, we're not going to do the Matt Taibbi series of articles, although in the future we're going to want to take a look at that. Matt Taibbi was writing Trump off as being a disgrace and uh, the ruination of the Republican Party, but it didn't quite turn out the way Matt envisioned. We're big fans of New Scientist magazine, and of course they weighed in on the issue in early January by noting that... Um, well, we just mustn't let a superpower turn its back on rationality. The magazine noted that authoritarianism is on the rise from Turkey to the Philippines, and now the U. Now in the U.S., the Republicans, led by Donald Trump, are rapidly dismantling any forces that might hold them accountable. They went on to say that the stakes are high in this, noting that the world, not just the U.S., faces threats that range from global warming to antibiotic failure to pandemics. A U.S. government that holds science in such low regard will be poorly equipped to deal with these. And if it stifles its citizens' ability to protest its denialism and ignorance, the U.S. will jeopardize not only its own people, but all of humanity. 
Well, yeah, there's that. Sounding a note before um, Inauguration Day was Richard Painter in the New York Times.com, who said, well, campaign rhetoric is one thing, but as a self-interested businessman, Trump will soon realize that most of the things he promised to do in order to get elected make no sense. He probably won't start a trade war. He probably won't build an expensive wall at the Mexican border. He'll also find out that his outlandish promise to deport illegal immigrants en masse would not only create great social unrest, but also devastate the economy. Well, <laughs> one can hope, huh? Let's go back to New Scientist. They wrote a whole piece on the potential Trump presidency, asking, what's the worst that could happen? Well, <laughs> the magazine noted that as Edward Snowden revealed in 2013, the U.S. government's surveillance powers had expanded dramatically under the Obama administration adding that Trump has repeatedly signaled that he intends to make much greater use of these capabilities, perhaps inspired by British legislation that had given UK government unprecedented power to snoop on its citizens. The magazine noted that in both cases, such powers were ostensibly introduced to combat terrorism, but there's very little evidence that greater spying powers actually catch terrorists. They also noted the US is launching a $35 billion per year modernization of our nuclear forces. The president, in the speech that he gave to Congress uh, a week or so ago, noted that he wants to give the defense industry, you know, they really should go back to calling it the War Department and its suppliers, a $54 billion increase, which will be paid for by deep cuts to the State Department and the EPA and other government agencies. We need to pause and ask, how much sense does that make, really? In the weeks to come, we hope to take a look back at the Vietnam War and how badly it was carried out, largely because there was no endpoint in mind. Some people to this day believe that that war could have been won, but those same people to this day don't explain what winning would mean. Sadly, here we are in 2017 having a similar discussion. And cutting to the heart of that discussion were the good people at NPR last week. I'd like to quote from a transcript of what here and now's Jeremy Hobson had to say in conversation with military analyst Andrew Bracevich. I think this is worth a slight detour. Bracevich is Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University. He was asked about Trump's remark that the U.S. needs to start winning wars again. Bracevich's response was that it affirms my belief that he's unqualified to be commander-in-chief. The question I think that we should focus on is the question of why don't we win? And will simply shoveling more money at the Pentagon produce victory? I'd have to hear the argument that would persuade me that that's the case, and I don't think, frankly, any such argument exists. Hobson asked him about the campaign against ISIS and where Trump's plan fits in. Basevich replied, I'd argue that ISIS really is a symptom of a larger problem. So people talk a lot about military strategy, as if sending an additional brigade of U.S. forces to the region is a strategy. It's not a strategy. There is no strategy. There's not even a discussion of strategy, as far as I can tell, in the foreign policy establishment. Asked about our civilian control of senior national security positions, Basevich said, I think that individually people like James Mattis and H.R. McMaster are seasoned, talented, capable, and well-intentioned. But, as a matter of course, I'm opposed to having our senior national security positions so dominated by military officers. I think that it chips away at the principle of civilian control. That's a principle that Americans take for granted. 
And um, I had to laugh after hearing that piece on Here and Now and then seeing a headline in the Sacramento Bee a few days later um, quoting General John Nicholson, the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan, saying, well, the headline is, General says more U.S. troops needed in Afghan war. To which I would say, okay, and what are we going to do with those troops? And um, what are they needed for? Well, when I read the article by Michael Gordon, reprinted from the New York Times, it said that a few thousand additional troops will allow them to more effectively train Afghan soldiers. Okay, why is it we're still in Afghanistan? If you have an answer to that, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Included among the folks looking at this raging militarism and being a little bit nervous are America's atomic scientists. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists has a doomsday clock, which has been present since the 50s. Since 1953, the doomsday timetable has been set somewhere between 2 and 17 minutes. With the Trump administration, the clock has now been reset from 3 minutes to doomsday down to 2 and a half. The group noted that the global security landscape darkened as the international community failed to come effectively to grips with humanity's most pressing existential threats, nuclear weapons, and climate change. They added, making matters worse, the United States now has a president who has promised to impede progress on both of these fronts. And when it comes to the crazy world of nuclear weapons and their threat, I need to quote here from... uh, an article in the L.A. Times, which I snagged when I was down there. The piece is by David Willman, and I think is worthy of discussing for a few minutes. The, the headline of the article was, No Plan to Fix Defense System. The subheadline is, Vital thrusters have shut down in testing, yet the Pentagon is expanding its missile interceptor program. To quote from the piece, the Pentagon is pushing ahead with an expansion of the nation's homeland missile defense system, despite a newly recognized deficiency that affects nearly all the system's rocket interceptors. The problem threatens the performance of small thrusters attached to the interceptors. In the event of a nuclear attack, the thrusters would be relied on to steer interceptors into the paths of enemy warheads, destroying them. These interceptors are the spine of the ground-based mid-course defense system, or GMD. This is described in the article as the nation's primary protection against a missile strike by either North Korea or Iran. Yes, apparently back in 1983, when Ronald Reagan, thanks to his scientific illiteracy largely, got this country uh, embarking upon an effort to create a missile defense shield, well, as you're probably well aware, we, we don't have any such shield because it was proposed in 1983. It was all based on futuristic technology, which at that point in time did not, in fact, exist. And although advances have been made on some of these areas, there's still no way you could put a space-based laser up there and shoot missiles down. That's just the long and the short of it. And yet, we're building a system to protect us from A, North Korea, and B, Iran. The article notes that this problem affecting thrusters came to light as a result of the system's most recent flight test on January 28, 2016, when an interceptor was launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. The test was designed to show whether a redesign of the thrusters had solved persistent problems with the component. And it 
didn't go as planned. One of the interceptor's four thrusters shut down during the test, causing the interceptor to veer from its intended course. But here's the part I like best. The U.S. Missile Defense Agency and its lead GMD contractors, I think they have a vested interest in this, nevertheless touted the exercise as a success, making no mention of the malfunction. Thank God reporters stayed on this story because they note that the first public explanation of the thruster malfunction had finally emerged in Pentagon documents and from interviews with missile defense specialists. A review board formed by the missile agency linked the failure to a circuit board that powers the thrusters. The most likely explanation, the panel said, was that a foreign object in the interceptor's internal guidance module came loose, fell onto the board, and caused a short circuit. It is worth noting that of the GMD system's 37 operational interceptors, 34 are equipped with older circuit boards vulnerable to the same kind of incident, according to missile defense specialists. It should be noted also that agency officials do not plan to retrofit or repair these older circuit boards. In fact, it appears that because the problem is related to a foreign object in the circuit board, um, well, viewpoints being taken that these thrusters are just fine. Now, there apparently are some dissenting opinions on that, but the main point is they're not going to retrofit them. Um, The article mentions that the nation's defense against massive nuclear attack by China or Russia still relies on deterrence. It's the Cold War document of mutually assured destruction, based on the idea that none of the major nuclear powers would ever strike first for fear of massive retaliation. Nevertheless, thanks to Ronald Reagan and Edward Teller and a a lot of contractors in the meantime, since 1983, uh, we have put in place missile defense systems. By the way, before Reagan got this bright idea, they were, in fact, allowed. This goes back to the 60s and 70s. Each side, in this case, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, was allowed to build a defensive missile system. Neither side invested very heavily in this because it was pretty clear that shooting down missiles with missiles just wasn't going to work. So why, you might ask, do we have this GMD system? It was designed to thwart a limited strike by a non-superpower, such as North Korea, by intercepting and destroying incoming warheads. Now, you might be interested to note, dear listener, that this GMD program protecting us from North Korea and Iran is something that has cost taxpayers to date more than $40 billion dollars. Billion, with a B. Reporting on this, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, the GAO, said the system's performance has been insufficient to demonstrate that an operationally useful defense capability exists. Well, we certainly hope nobody tells the North Koreans about this. All this talk about Star Wars had me pull a book up that's been sitting on my shelf for many years, Francis Fitzgerald's Way Out There in the Blue, subtitled Reagan, Star Wars, and the End of the Cold War. Francis Fitzgerald wrote, well, I don't know if it's the best book written on Vietnam, but it's as good as they come, Fire in the Lake. The most astonishing thing about it was how insightful it was about every aspect of the Vietnam conflict, and yet it was written before the war had actually come to a close. I'm sure Francis Fitzgerald is equally um, insightful about how the whole Star Wars thing got started, and maybe we'll do a book report in the future. Another 
book report we may want to do is Greg Herkin's The Georgetown Set, Friends and Rivals in Cold War Washington. Although in this case, since Greg Herkin is Professor Emeritus of Modern American Diplomatic History at the University of California at Berkeley, and apparently lives in Santa Cruz, we might be able to score him on the show. I certainly hope so. It's a fantastic book with many insights and... uh, and even has a passing reference to the aforementioned Francis Fitzgerald, whose daddy, Desmond Fitzgerald, was a rather legendary figure in the Central Intelligence Agency. It probably helped Francis's book that her, that her old man was in charge of the CIA's uh, uh, Asian division. But nevertheless, it is a fantastic book. Also mentioned in it was Neil Sheehan, the man who, when working for the New York Times, Daniel Ellsberg passed the Pentagon Papers to. I looked it up. Mr. Sheehan is 81 years of age, apparently still alive and well, and is somebody we also should consider bringing on the program. Although I've been promising Daniel Ellsberg for the past couple years and haven't delivered so far. Um, Every time I see Ellsberg, which has been a few times in recent years, he promises that that he will talk to us, and and I I, I just have to get on that. I will. And speaking of Vietnam, we note with great sadness the passing of author David Lamb. He apparently left us last June. We did not note this, but we certainly very much enjoyed our speaking with him about his book, Vietnam Now, A Reporter Returns. That interview is, of course, archived at radioparallax.com. If you never heard our chat with David Lamb, we certainly hope you will take the time and do so. And if you're in a Vietnam mood, please also take the time to listen to our interview with UC Davis's Larry Berman about his fascinating book, Perfect Spy, The Incredible Double Life of Pham Soon On, Time Magazine reporter and Vietnamese communist agent. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned from the great fiasco that was Vietnam. And I fear that given the current direction of the country, we have learned none of them at least at a governmental level. One final item about Southeast Asia. There's a new book out, which we have not read, but did peruse the uh, review of it in The Economist. It's by Joshua Kurzlanzik, titled A Great Place to Have a War, America and Laos and the Birth of a Military CIA. It's worth quoting a little bit from this review of the book, which said that the bombing of Laos in the 1960s and early 70s was always used to be referred to as America's secret war. This was not just a mistake or even a misunderstanding. It was a terrible misnomer. For the Laotians, who cowered in caves to escape what is considered the heaviest bombardment in history, the campaign was certainly not a secret. America's involvement was well known in the capital, Vientiane, and covered in the international press. Eventually, it became well-publicized and was even investigated by Congress. But the secret label stuck to America's war in Laos in part because of official denials and in part because of public indifference. It is a matter of record, I believe, that more bombs were dropped on Laos than in all of World War II and all of the theaters of war. Since this made very little sense militarily, you do have to wonder about the position that many adopt, that we have an out-of-control military-industrial complex which serves its own purposes, whether it makes sense for the rest of the nation and its broad foreign policy or not. 
Our position at Radio Parallax is that that probably is a very good way to look at things. I think at this point we need to lighten the mood of the program just a tad by doing one of our favorite things, which we generally do every week, which is to take a look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week. I would say a very, very good week last week for Barack and Michelle Obama, who sold their forthcoming separate memoirs to Penguin Random House for a combined price of $65 million, the highest book advance on record. Of course, perhaps we will learn in that volume by Barack Obama how it is he was (laughs) secretly taping Donald Trump. Then again, maybe not. We think it was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for people who want to get married and want to get married in a hurry (laughs) with the news that Taco Bell has announced plans to host wedding ceremonies at its 24-hour Las Vegas restaurant. The $600 package (laughs) includes a branded garter belt and bow tie, and the newlyweds can come in and order a wedding right off our menu, said the company. And we have no way of knowing if, in this particular case, this run for the border has anything to do with Trump's immigration policies. We also know it was an ugly week last week for traveling light after it was revealed that Saudi King Salman bin Abdulaziz set out for a nine-day trip to Indonesia with more than 500 tons of luggage. 572 workers the load, which included two Mercedes-Benz limousines and a pair of specialty escalators. And finally, we're not sure whether it was a good, bad, or ugly week (laughs) for um, Swedes, but here's the story. A Swedish politician has proposed that the country's workers receive a paid hour-long break each day so they can go home and have sex. Town Councilman Per-Eric Muskos said subsidized intimacy could improve relationships and boost well-being, and also Sweden's dwindling birth rate. He said, I believe that sex is a scarce commodity in many long relationships. Everyday sex is stressful. If the paid sex hour is created, he concedes, you can't guarantee that a worker doesn't go out for a walk instead. Well, we'd hate to see their time put to that use. All right, let's do a little bit of follow-up. We, we got some flack, or at least this correspondent got some flack when he posted his salty opinions on Facebook about this so-called continent of Zealandia. Some um, KDVSers with a bit of geology background took the position that, well, even though 94% of this purported continent is below water, it still is a continental landmass. And indeed, many geologists are arguing that this landmass, which spans roughly 1.9 million square miles, meets all the criteria to qualify as a bona fide continent, except that it's underwater, mostly. 
Researchers are saying that this shouldn't preclude Zealandia from continental status. As seafloor mapping reveals, it's not a collection of continental islands and fragments, but one huge mass that sits above and is distinct from the dense rocks of the ocean floor. And supposedly, if we were to have ice ages again, a lot of this lost continent would reemerge from beneath the waves. And while this correspondent is not necessarily accepting this argument, it's clear that the case can be made that that I was partly, if not completely, all wet. And the debate over whether Pluto qualifies as a planet has been resurrected. Led by Alan Stern, who is head of NASA's New Horizons mission to Pluto, which did, which did produce very surprising pictures of the former ninth planet. The counter-argument is now being leveled that uh, planets are just round things. <laughs> They're not suns, and if they have enough gravity to shape themselves into being round, call them a planet. Only problem with this is that our moon and a hundred other bodies in the solar system would now qualify. In fact, people that have done the math now say that if Pluto were to become a planet by this new definition, so would 108 other objects in the solar system. We tend to take the position that demoting Pluto was appropriate, but boy, what a mess. It's such a mess, we're pretty sure that our friends at Planetary Radio and the Planetary Society still won't be able to sort it out with us. All right, another follow-up item, which I think we'll use as our stat of the day, is that, sadly, Republican lawmakers have pushed legislation to curb protesting in at least 18 states in the wake of President Trump's election. In what civil liberties experts describe as a growing attack on First Amendment rights in Iowa, Minnesota, Virginia, and elsewhere, legislators have introduced or voted on bills that would increase punishments for blocking highways, ban protesters from wearing masks, and exempt motorists from liability if they hit demonstrators with their vehicles. Who out there thinks this is a trend going in the right direction? Our bonus stat of today's program is 22. 22 apparently was the number of defendants tried at a given time during the Nuremberg trials post-World War II. This stat came out because Benjamin Ferenc, who took part in the prosecutions, in fact, the last person to do so, passed last week at age 97. He took part in a trial of Nazi extermination squads, and again, with 22 people in the dock at one time. And the reason they did that was, well, there were only 22 seats available. Seems to me they probably should have got a bigger venue. And uh, speaking of misbehavior from nations which have a history of totalitarianism, which I admit is quite a stretch as a segue, but let's talk about Russia. Oh, and for those historically challenged, during World War II, we were on the same side as Russia. Apparently history pop quizzes of a lot of current students uh, um, have them answering that, no, we were allied with Germany against the communists, weren't we? No. But according to the week, French presidential candidate Emmanuel Macron has been the target of fake news spread by Russian media and the victim of thousands of cyber attacks by Moscow-backed hackers. That's according to his campaign manager. 
They note that Kremlin-run outlets RT and Sputnik News have recently claimed that the election frontrunner is supported by a gay lobby and is a U.S. agent for U.S. banking interests. Hmm. Russian fake news and hacking? Stop me if you've heard this one. Now, the Russians are none too keen about um, seeing more European nations become part of NATO. And, and really, we do have to ask the question, along with Donald Trump, as to what the purpose of NATO really is. Joseph Stalin was thought to be a threat to Europe at the end of World War II. And so the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was formed to check the possibility of Soviet expansion. But Joseph Stalin did pass away in 1953. And despite the fears of a lot of cold warriors, uh, the Russians did not make a serious effort to take over Europe. That doesn't mean they did some meddling and are still doing some meddling. It's alleged now that the Kremlin was behind a failed attempt last October to derail Montenegro's bid to join NATO by assassinating then-Prime Minister Milo Djukanovic. Montenegro is planning to indict two Russian military agents who it says spent months training a small force of Serbian nationalists. The Russians have made a really big effort to, um, to stay on good terms with Serbia, and they would very much like to have Montenegro remain in um, their sphere of influence. This correspondent did visit Montenegro in May of last year and would note that the large fjord present in the Adriatic which is in Montenegro, makes an excellent naval base, which the Russians uh, very much want to keep in at least mostly friendly hands. And even though the UN ruled some time back that Kosovo, with its Albanian majority population, is not actually a part of Serbia, I can guarantee you there's signs all over Serbia saying that it is, and the Russians are willing to back them and maintaining that claim. So we're not going to see an independent Kosovo anytime soon, apparently. We need a good news item to close this segment. I think we'll go to The Economist for this one. Uh, This is one I bought off the stands because, unfortunately, I let my subscription lapse. But here's the deal. Down in South America in Colombia, it's an unfortunate fact of life that jaguars will sometimes attack, kill, and eat cattle. The magazine noted that when that happens, ranchers hunt the offender down and shoot it. That practice is endangering the cat's survival. Panthera, a charity that manages corridors for jaguars that stretch from Argentina to Mexico, guesses that just 5,000 cats are left in this area of Colombia. So a better idea, some people are thinking, is to teach cattle self-defense. And no, not by teaching the cattle Kung Fu, but by breeding a fighting instinct in them. It turns out that down in the tropics, the favored type of cattle are the zebu, which I believe come from the Indian subcontinent. They do well in hot, steamy weather, but when jaguars show up, they panic and run every which way and do not fight back. So Panthera's idea is to replace these panicky zebu with cattle that stand their ground or interbreed them. Esteban Payan, who directs Panthera's operations in northern South America, chose San Martineros, a little-known subspecies of criollo cattle descended from Spanish fighting bulls. Few jaguars dare to challenge a mass group of 500-kilogram San Martineros, their horns leveled at the cat. Docile with humans, they are fierce defenders of territory and they're young. 
Reportedly, the San Martinero cows, an offspring of zebus that have been inseminated by San Martinero bulls, do indeed stick together when jaguars approach. And reportedly, cattle that are just a quarter San Martinero may be just as brave. Reportedly, no jaguars have attacked cattle in Los Pampos, which is an experimental ranch where this program has begun. Well, we certainly hope breeding fighting bulls into the cattle population will help save some jaguars down in South America. All right, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.